I'm hoping once again that you remember back at the beginning of the year that we laid out a uh, three-part direction for of what we believe God was calling us to as a congregation for this point in time, upreach, outreach, and proclamation. Upreach, talking about things like uh, intimacy with God and prayer and worship and outreach, talking about evangelism and discipleship and unity. And that's the things that we've emphasized really a lot in the last couple of years. And uh, some of you are wondering why I'm telling you this again, just because I want to make sure that we understand not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. These are important issues for us. And right now we believe God has us in a, a season of proclamation, of proclaiming his word uh, into our lives, over and above our situations and circumstances, even over our experiences. And um, we've been in a series about marriage. This is going to be uh, the final, uh, seri- final message in that series. Some of you are happy about that, others are sad. Um, <laughs> sorry, either way. Uh, there will be something different next week coming along, but... Uh, uh, we, and we feel like this is an important issue because marriage is really a, a topic in, from a scriptural perspective that is very, very important. It's, the, it's the, 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 the foundation for society and even for the church. And so for, even for those of you that are not married, this is not something that is just kind of ethereal. We all need to understand the value, if you will, of marriage. And some of you here that are not married are eventually going to be married. And so things that you probably need to know. So that's kind of where we're at. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we consider your word, would you use your word to bring change into our lives, bring conviction into our lives where we need it, bring strength into our lives where we need it, Lord, that your word might be that that strong sword going into our heart and, and piercing where it needs to and bringing life. And Lord, we trust that you're going to do that here in this time together because you're a faithful God. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this The Responsibility of Marriage, and I told my wife and daughter if there's any mistakes in the PowerPoint, I apologize. I did it in like 15 minutes this morning when I realized last evening that I hadn't done a PowerPoint, so uh, I just kind of bear with me here, all right? Uh, I'm going to share with you four what I believe are responsibilities of marriage. And this is not an exhaustive list. Um, and th- there are certainly other things that I'm sure that you guys could, could come up with, but I didn't think you'd wanna be here until three o'clock this afternoon. So I limited it to just four, all right? So uh, ho- hopefully that's gonna be okay. And, and I don't think these are in necessarily any particular order, just so you know. First one, I believe that we have a responsibility to, to honor and esteem marriage, to honor and esteem marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Be held in honor among all, not just those that are married, but everybody. The, uh, the Greek word here for honor is the, the word timius. It literally means valuable, costly, esteemed. So according to this verse, we're supposed to see marriage as valuable. It's to be esteemed. It's to be honored. And I think that word has profound implications because in 1 Peter chapter 1, it talks about how we, we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The word precious there, the precious blood of Christ, is the same word Timios in the Greek. It's the precious blood of Christ. It's valuable. It's, it's costly. First uh, Peter 2, 4, just a few verses later, it talks about how Jesus was chosen and precious in the sight of Father. Again, the word precious there 
is a, a variation of that same word, timios. So think about this. How does God want us to esteem marriage? He puts it on the same level as the blood of Christ, as Christ himself. Precious, valuable, costly, esteemed. It's to be highly honored. That's pretty important from my perspective. God, even in Scripture, likens himself as our bridegroom, Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Clearly, from God's perspective, marriage is a big deal. And think about this. Jesus' very first miracle was done at a wedding. That's a pretty strong stamp of approval, I think. His first first miracle was not done at a divorce court, even though divorce was pretty common in that that culture. And and I don't think anything that Jesus did was done by accident. It didn't just kind of happen. So the fact that his very first miracle was done at a wedding What was he doing there? He was esteeming marriage like we just talked about. In essence, he is telling the people there and the people of all time, hey, you guys, I think this marriage stuff is really, really good. It's really, really important. See, that verse that we read says that we're supposed to esteem marriage, hold it in high esteem. I think too many people today hold it in low esteem. It's not really that big of a deal. You watch practically any sitcom, any talk show today, and they're ridiculing marriage. They're making fun of it. It's not esteemed. There's derogatory comments going on. They're laughing at it. And, and I will say that in a, in a society where marriage is considered to be a human construct, something that we came up with, and further that it's, it can be dissolved anytime you want it to out of convenience, that that's the, that's the natural then end. Of course, they're not going to esteem it. It's really not all that valuable. It's not all that meaningful. But God's word says it should be held in honor. It is valuable. So we, as followers of Christ, should see it as costly. We are to esteem marriage. It's apparently one of God's most valuable gifts. So my question is, do you view marriage that way? Do you see it like that, as costly, as valuable, as something to be honored? We should. Second, we have a responsibility to fulfill the commitment that we made in marriage. Here's an interesting bit of information that I came across, and it really uh, shaped the general direction of this message. In a Roman wedding... The man, the groom that we would call, he was called a sponsus. That is spelled S-P-O-N-S-U-S. The woman, the bride, was referred to as a sponsa, S-P-O-N-S-A. So the sponsus and the sponsa got married, and in doing so, they made a commitment to one another. The sponsus and the sponsa each had a, an obligation to fulfill to one another, and so it became a responsibility. I thought that was interesting. The two were committing themselves to one another and only to one another for the rest of their lives. So if they broke their marriage vows, they were referred to as irresponsible. That's the etymology of that word. 
It came from marriage. So when we talk about the word responsibility, the original idea goes back to that obligation, that commitment of the marriage relationship. There is a responsibility that is involved in marriage. It's not just, as somebody said, it's not just, uh, or it is until death us parts us, till death parts us, not just until I'm tired of trying. It's a lifelong commitment. In his uh, love song in scripture, uh, King Solomon said this from Song of Solomon chapter six, chapter eight, sorry. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. In other words, you can't put a price on it. Love is stronger than anything we know. And that's the, what our commitment to marriage is supposed to be based on. It's not, the, it's not the, the, the worldly idea of love, the emotion, infatuation kind of idea. No, it's a commitment. It's a long-term thing. It's much deeper than, than that infatuation idea. Great story I came across while I was getting ready for this message. There was a, a very unusual military funeral that was held in December of 2013. Very important. Remember that year, 2013, okay? When was it? Okay, just want to make sure you're, we're together on this. Sergeant First Class Joseph Gant, who fought in both World War II and the Korean War, was laid to rest. He was captured in Korea in 1950 and died the following year. When was the funeral? When did he die? How long is that? It's a long time. That's a good answer, Trish. 62 technically, but yeah. His body wasn't returned for 62 years. He was never, his death was never acknowledged by the North Koreans. His wife, Claire, waited for decades for her husband to come back. She regularly went to meetings with the government officials seeking information about what had happened. Clara even, I love this, he, she even bought a house and had it professionally landscaped. So all Joseph would have to do when he came home was go fishing. She was 94 years old when his remains were finally brought home for a military funeral with full honors. It wasn't the homecoming she dreamed of, but she finally knew his fate and Clara told a reporter who, in, who interviewed her, he told me if anything happened to him, he wanted me to remarry. And I told him, no, no, here I am, still his wife, and I'm going to remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home. Now, please realize that from a scriptural perspective, if someone who is married, if their spouse dies, they have the right to remarry, okay? So I'm not suggesting that that's wrong, that Clara would have been wrong to do that. That's very obvious in the Bible, all right? But what I'm trying to do is, is to, to help us understand the commitment in marriage here. She thought her husband was still alive. And for 62 years, she waited and fulfilled that commitment that she had made. What did Solomon say? Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. One writer said it like this, the I me must be subordinated to we. It's not just about me. Uh, a pastor from the Northwest, not going to go into any names or churches or anything like that, but he 
his marriage in some ways had really fallen apart because he had put ministry ahead of marriage. And he realized that was wrong and he made a, a new commitment to his marriage. And he wrote about it. And I think that this, what I'm going to read to you here that he wrote, this, this is what commitment really looks like practically for marriage. He said this, I'm standing up for the healing of my marriage. I won't give up, give in, give out, or give over until the healing takes place. I made a vow. I said the words. I gave the pledge. I gave a ring. I took a ring. I gave myself. I trusted God and said the words and meant the words in sickness and in health, in sorrow and in joy, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in good times and in bad. So I'm standing now and I won't sit down, let down, slow down, calm down, fall down, look down, or be down till the breakdown is torn down. I refuse to put my eyes on outward circumstances or listen to the prophets of doom or buy into what's trendy, worldly, popular, convenient, easy, quick, thrifty, or advantageous. Nor would I settle for a cheap imitation of God's real thing. Nor will I seek to lower God's standard, twist God's will, rewrite God's word, violate God's covenant, or accept what God hates, namely divorce. Surrounded by lies, I will speak the truth. Where hopelessness abounds, I will hope in God. Where revenge is easier, I will bless instead of curse. And when the odds are stacked against me, I'll trust in God's faithfulness. I'm a stander and I won't acquiesce, compromise, quarrel, or quit. I have made the choice, set my face, entered the race, believed the word, and trusted in God for all of the outcome. I will not allow the reaction of my spouse, nor the urging of my friends, nor the advice of my loved ones, nor the economic hardship, nor the prompting of the devil to make me let up, slow up, blow up, or give up till my marriage is healed up. What a great attitude. Now, I'll be honest, I wish he would have had that attitude earlier on. I think it might have kept him from getting to that place. But at the same time, I think that's the commitment that we all need to have, regardless of what's going on. I'm in it for the long haul. And again, we absolutely have to recognize that this whole idea of marriage was God's design. It wasn't something that we came up with. Think back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We get this, this kind of wide-angle shot of creation, all of the things that are going on. And each day at the end, it says God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. We keep hearing that over and over. And then in chapter 2, we kind of zoom in to one small snippet from that wide-angle shot in chapter 1. And all of a sudden we hear it's not good. This is, keep in mind, this is before the fall. This is before rebellion and something wasn't good. And it was that Adam was alone. God looked and he said, this is, this is not good. And so what did he do? He made Eve. It was God's idea. It wasn't mankind that came up with this idea. It was God. That's the reason that Proverbs 18.22, Daryl shared this verse last week. It says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. A wife is a gift from God. You might think you found her on your own, but you didn't. She's a gift from God. It's the Lord's favor on you 
that you are married. Men, do you ever look at your wife and say, God, thank you for your favor? If you don't, you should, because that's what it says. It's a favor from God. Genesis chapter 2, right in the middle of that creation story, says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The whole idea of marriage was clearly God's idea. He was the designer. He was the originator. In fact, that first marriage, the, the two participants didn't even get any choice about who they were going to get to marry. Not that there were a lot of options at that point, but it was, it was clearly God who put that whole thing together. It was his idea. If we recognize that marriage is not simply a a civil construct, but something birthed out of the heart of God himself, then it's going to make it a whole lot easier for us to, to, to not only esteem and honor marriage, but to fulfill our commitment to it. Are you with me? And, and, and this might seem a little bit of an aside, but I don't think it is. We should recognize that there are multiple aspects to marriage. It's not just a a simply a legal contract. There is a, there is a mental aspect. There is a spiritual aspect. There is a, a physical aspect. There is a biological aspect. There is an emotional aspect. All of these, these different parts. And, and if we re- neglect any of those things, there may be consequences as a result. Think about this. If you have a garden and you don't allow light into the garden, what's going to happen? Plants are going to die. If you have a garden and you don't allow water into the garden, what's going to happen? Plants are going to die. If you have a garden and you don't fertilize the plants, all right, they may not die, but they're not going to do as well, right? Different aspects, but all of them are important. And if you neglect any of those, they're going to be consequences. Same thing is true in the marriage relationship. As a married couple, we have an obligation to take care of those various aspects. They're all important, but I want us to understand that every couple and each person in that couple is different from everybody else. So what you have to do is recognize what's important for your spouse. Let me try it from this direction. You you might be familiar with um, Hall of Fame pitcher Nolan Ryan, storied career, one of the best pitchers of all time. After he retired, his wife Ruth wrote a book entitled Covering Home, My Wife, My Life with Nolan Ryan. And in that book, she said this, it probably happened the first time on the high school baseball diamond in Alvin, Texas in the mid-1960s. Then it happened regularly for three decades after that. Inevitably, sometime during a game, Nolan would pop out of the dugout and scan the stands behind home plate looking for me. He would find my face and grin at me, maybe snapping his head up in a quick nod as if to say, there you are, I'm glad. I'd wave and flash him a smile. Then he'd duck under the roof and turn back to the game. It was a simple moment, never noted in record books or career summaries, but of all of the moments in all of the games, it was the one most important to me. Just a small gesture, but it had a big impact. Now, there may be some of you ladies who are sitting here right now going, that wouldn't have been that big of a deal to me. And that's my point. Because every one of us is different. We're not all the same. Different things are going to mean different things to us. And we need to recognize what's important for our spouse and how we can handle those different aspects of marriage for that person. 
Uh, I don't have time to go into it today, but I would uh, encourage you to check out uh, the teaching from Gary Chapman, Five Languages of Love. If you have not encountered that, I think it's really, really worthwhile. It helps uh, uh, couples to understand one another better, which we could probably all use. So we have a responsibility to fulfill the marriage commitment. Third, I would suggest that given the, the Bible's repeated commands to love and about love, love one another as I have loved you. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, love is patient and kind, enduring all things. Uh, from from uh, Ephesians 4 where it tells us to, to bear one another in love. All of these different uh, uh, commands to love over and over and over. Given all of those commands, uh, I think that especially in marriage, we have a responsibility to continue to love unreservedly. To continue to love unreservedly. Now here's the problem with this. If you really do it, it makes you vulnerable and puts you at risk. I mean, the reality is that if you're walking in an honest, self-sacrificing love that Scripture describes, you can be taken advantage of. You can. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. He loved perfectly. He put himself fully out. He gave himself completely. And what happened? People took advantage of him. People tried to take advantage of him wanting free food. People did take advantage of him when they nailed him to a cross. They realized, you know, he, he's, he's not going to fight back. He's not going to retaliate. He's an easy target. And the same thing can happen potentially to you and me. If we love completely, not holding anything back, we can be taken advantage of. In fact, I'll almost guarantee that at some point it will happen to you if you do that. I remember... Uh, years ago, listening to a, a man who does a lot of marriage counseling. And he really encourages people to do this in the, that marriage relationship, to really put yourself in there, to love fully, completely, not holding anything back. And he said that when he would do that, it would not be at all unusual for him to have somebody respond, well, wouldn't that make me vulnerable? Wouldn't my spouse be able to take advantage of me at that point? And his response to that line of questioning was, so? Now, see, we don't like that response. We bristle at that kind of an idea, and yet that's how Jesus lived, full out, not holding anything back, loving totally. I just finished reading a book by a pastor named Benjamin Carner, and he said this, walking in love is one of those concepts easier said than done. To walk in love is to put oneself at risk for hurt or rejection. To walk in love is to sacrifice for the benefit of others, expecting nothing in return. Walking in love is hard when someone is thoughtless. Walking in love is hard when someone takes advantage of kindness. Walking in love is hard when the other party is not interested in doing anything in your best interests. And he's right. Now, I would say that ideally, Taking advantage of the other person shouldn't happen in a Christian marriage relationship. We should be trying to outlove and outgive the other person. But the fact is that if you're married, you are married to somebody who has a sinful nature. And by the way, so is your spouse married to somebody who has a sinful nature. And that automatically means that there will be times that that person will take advantage of your love at some point. 
And you might even get hurt in the process and want to rein your love in, if you will, as a result. See, if you, if you get burned any place, for whatever reason, the, 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 the normal reaction is, well, that hurt, I'd rather not have that happen again. And so in the context of love, the common thing to do is, well, I don't want to go there again, so I'm going to not love quite so much. But when we do that, something on the inside of us begins to shrivel up. If you rein in your love and hold it back, part of you begins to die. And that's never a good thing. We were discussing this idea Monday night at our elders meeting and somebody suggested that true and total forgiveness, which is a part of love, that that automatically allows for the opportunity for next time. See, if, if somebody does something to me that's offensive, whatever, I need to forgive them. That's part of love, which means if I forgive them, then I'm not holding them at arm's length. I'm still back in the game. I'm loving them fully and completely, which means that it could happen again. Are you with me? Next time. Now, I will say that there should be, in the case of physical abuse, there should be intervention. I totally get that. But simply because somebody offends me is no reason to hold back love. It's not. The whole idea of, of holding back, of reigning in our love and expressions of love, you know, it really reminds me of when Jesus was talking to the church in, in uh, the book of Revelation where he says that they were lukewarm, halfway, half-hearted. That wasn't a compliment from Jesus' perspective. When we do that, either with God or with our spouse, we're missing out. There's a man named Xenophon. He was um, a, a student of Socrates. He was also a historian. And he tells about Cyrus the Great, one of the greatest conquerors in history in his writings. And at one point in a battle, Cyrus took captives that included a young prince of Armenia and his wife, uh, a... Uh, his beloved, the one that he loved with all of his heart. And in the course of time, that couple was brought before the tribunal of Cyrus to be sentenced for their war crimes, if you will. So apparently Cyrus, the great conqueror at the tribunal, asked the prince, what would he be willing to pay to be restored to being the prince? And the prince said that his crown and even his liberty really didn't mean anything to him. But if the noble conqueror would restore his beloved wife to her former dignity and possessions, he would willingly pay his life for that purchase. Apparently that response swayed Cyrus because he allowed them to go free and restored them to their former positions. And it wasn't long after that that the prince and the princess were alone and he asked her, so what did you think of Cyrus? And her response was, I did not observe him. And he was kind of taken aback. What do you mean you didn't observe him? What, what, what were you looking at then? What was your attention fixed on? And she said, upon that dear and generous man who declared his readiness to purchase my liberty at the expense of his life. Now, now here's the deal. 
she could have easily taken advantage of that situation. I mean, somebody who is honestly willing to literally lay down his life for somebody else, that person is not going to hold back anything. They will do anything for that person, right? And so it would be really easy to take advantage of somebody like that. But the fact is that the opposite usually happens. When someone is so loved, so valued, there is a willingness, a desire to reciprocate. How can there not be? How could you not care for somebody who cares that much for you? It's really no different than we love God because he first loved us, right? When we recognize a, a deep and self-sacrificing love in another person, we want to do the same for them. So our responsibility in marriage is to continue to love unreservedly. All right, and there's one other area of responsibility, and I listed it last, not because I think it's most important or least important, it's just because it's the most awkward to talk about. It's the physical aspect of marriage. We have a responsibility to keep the physical relationship pure. And let me start off by saying that as followers of Christ, there should be no crudeness or innuendo or intimate secrets being shared in a public setting. What you and your spouse do in the confines of your private space is nobody else's business and what other people do in the confines of their private space is none of your business. And this is really weird to say in a culture that is saturated with sex. Turn on the television. If you don't see it, you hear about it. The most common uh, topic of conversation I've been told it breaks during business is sex just everywhere, but among us as Christians, these things shouldn't be. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 said, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Shame, there's a word you don't hear a lot in our culture, isn't it? And yet scripture says there's some things we should be ashamed to talk about. You know, when our, our kids were younger, my wife especially tried to impress upon them that there were certain things that were appropriate mealtime conversation and certain things that were not appropriate mealtime conversation. I'm not entirely certain our son Stephen ever got that lesson. But um, in, the, sorry, you guys that know him know what I'm talking about. But in the same way, there are appropriate things to talk about in the confines of your home and even, I would say, for married couples in your bedroom that may not be appropriate in the public setting. What people do in private shouldn't be paraded into the public. Now let me try to take this a step farther, but hopefully not too far. Depending on the, the translation of the Bible that you use, the word lust is found more than a dozen times in the New Testament. When we use that word, we're not necessarily talking about in a, in a sexual context. Lust is, is, is often, it's about what you don't have. It's the opposite of the word contentment. If you look in a, a thesaurus, uh, one of the synonyms would be the word covetousness. It is desiring what you don't have and likely shouldn't have. So in the context of what we often think of then as lust, it can become a desire for what you don't have, even to the point of fantasizing about it. So a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She was a feminist lesbian university professor until she met the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And she wrote a book about her conversion. It's entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Pretty fascinating book, actually. In the book, Rosaria said this, Sexual sin won't be healed by redeeming the context or the genders. Too many young Christian fornicators plan that marriage will redeem their sin. Interesting statement, will redeem their sin. Too many young Christian internet pornographers think that having legitimate sex will take away their desire to have illicit sex. They're wrong. Now don't misunderstand, getting married does put the physical relationship into the context that God says it's supposed to be in. Totally get that. But if the motivation for the physical act is misplaced, then it's wrong, it's sinful. Let me hit this from a different angle, see if this helps. The Bible says that gluttony is a sin. So if God has been dealing with me about my overeating, about regularly overindulging my fleshly nature, then it doesn't really make a lot of difference whether I sneak out at midnight to have my 14th snack of the day or if I am seated at the table and my wife is willingly serving me a meal which I consume every last morsel plus the leftovers from yesterday and three helpings of dessert... It's still gluttony, even though all of that stuff is freely offered. It's still misplaced motivation. Are you with me? Let, let me put it at a different angle and maybe a more accurate illustration. Suppose that my wife has fixed me a wonderful meal, but all during the meal, I am fantasizing that this is really a meal from my favorite restaurant. I'm not really enjoying what I've been freely given. The same is true in the physical aspect of marriage. It might be legitimate in the sense that it's okay legally, but if there's misplaced motivations, if there are wrongful thoughts, fantasies, etc., it's still missing the mark. And you know what the technical definition of sin is? Missing the mark. The good news is that when we identify something as sin, we know what to do with it. We repent. We turn to God. We ask for forgiveness. We turn I think it's interesting that right after the writer of the, the letter of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all, that opening verse that we started with, goes right on to say, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And Jesus made it very clear that that's not just about the physical. The mental also counts. And some of you may need to get some help in this particular area. I have a friend who said it's a whole lot easier to cut down an oak tree when it's a little sapling than when it's grown for 40 years. But if you have one of those persistent, hard-to-cut-down-on-your-own sins in your own life, maybe you need to find somebody that can help you, somebody that can be honest with you and pray for you and hold you accountable. The responsibility of marriage. We have a responsibility to honor and esteem marriage. We have a responsibility to fulfill the commitment that we made in marriage. We have a responsibility to continue to love unreservedly. And we have a responsibility to keep the physical relationship pure. You know, I'm hoping that what I've done here today is I've stretched your understanding a little bit of the responsibility of marriage that maybe you haven't seen it quite like this. Because see, if I've done that, then what that's going to do is drive you to God. 
See, if you have a picture of marriage that says, I can do this, your picture is way, way, way too small. If it's not about that three-stranded cord, you're sunk. I believe if God's grace isn't filling you to be the spouse that he wants you to be, that you don't have any hope at all. You don't have any chance in that role. It's got to be him. But the upside is that with the Lord, guess what? You can do this. With his strength, you can do more than just make it through. You're more than a conqueror. You're his child. You're redeemed by the Lord. You're true husband, if you will. And he will give you everything that you need to accomplish what he wants you to do in that role. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we have encountered once again the truth of your word being proclaimed into and over our lives. Lord, we have been in some ways convicted. Forgive us for not taking these responsibilities seriously. Lord, remind us, all of us, to, that we're supposed to honor marriage and esteem marriage the way that you want us to, fully and totally. God, push us forward in, in fulfilling the commitment that we made in marriage. Lord, would you in your mercy help us to love unreservedly in the marriage relationship, but even beyond that, with one another. And God, would you strengthen us to keep our physical relationship pure the way you want us to. And Father, I, I would pray here today, even for those who are not married, Lord, that uh, those who are not married that want to be, God, would you bring to them the person that is going to be the right life mate for them to bring that fulfillment of marriage that you talk about in your word. And Lord, we trust you in all of these things because you are a good God who cares for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.